All right. Hi, 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 hi. Sorry to keep you. That's all right. You ready to go to work? That was Joe Biden welcoming California Senator Kamala Harris to the Democratic ticket in a campaign video released Wednesday morning. Biden's selection of Harris as his vice presidential running mate has energized Democrats on the eve of next week's virtual convention. The first African-American woman to be selected for a major party ticket, she is a formidable figure who brings the kind of political and governmental experience as a former prosecutor and attorney general and now sitting U.S. senator that none of her rivals in the deep stakes really had. But she could also bring some baggage, especially for progressives that have long had qualms about her days as DA and AG when she failed to embrace criminal justice reforms. We'll get two perspectives on Harris's selection, first from former California Senator Barbara Boxer, who Harris succeeded as senator, and from law professor Lara Bazelon, who last year wrote a stinging critique of Harris's record as a prosecutor, all on this edition of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, I have to say I am not at all surprised by the selection of Harris. I've thought for some time she was the logical choice for Biden to make and the safest choice. Um, she had stature as a United States senator, as somebody who'd run for president, political experience, something that Susan Rice clearly didn't have. And, you know, you put it all together. It seemed to me that it was inevitable that she would be selected. The question, I suppose, is how much is she going to help the ticket? How much will she energize uh, Democrats who, you know, may not have been enthusiastic about Biden to come out and vote? Well, the days of when you would put someone on the ticket to win a key state or region have been over, I think, since uh, LBJ helped JFK win Texas in 1960. And she's obviously from California, which has been in the Democratic column at least back to 1992, I think, when Clinton won. So, so it's what you're talking about. It's her ability to energize Democrats to win over black voters. They're, they're Clearly will be excitement about the fact that she is the first African-American and South Asian, by the way, on a um, female on a presidential ticket. Let's not forget the Jewish husband and a Hollywood the, lawyer, the Jewish, yes. the Jewish husband. I don't think Donald Trump uh, was likely to, to win the Jewish vote. But, you know, this is all about the margins, I guess. This is a demographic pick more than a geographic pick, I guess I, I would say. And I think she is going to be uh, helpful. I think she I think it's a it's a safe choice, but I think it's a largely a good choice. Doesn't mean that she doesn't have vulnerabilities. You mentioned criminal justice reform. There are some people who 
say that she can be a little bit gaff prone. And so we'll see how that uh, shakes out. But she is, I think, helped by the fact that there's not going to be a lot of in-person campaigning. Um, she's uh, going to be able to control the message a lot more than uh, if this had been a traditional campaign. I think the larger question about Kamala Harris is if they win, what kind of a vice president she becomes and what the dynamic is between the two of them. They have not been known to be close. But, you know, she is, you know, I think from day one, she becomes potentially anyway the the likeliest candidate in a Democratic nominee for the 2024 race. And so that clearly is going to have an impact on the relationship between herself and between the president should Biden become president. You know, uh, I can see one really uh, fascinating uh, dynamic if Biden does win the election and Harris becomes vice president, and that would be the tension and dynamic between Harris, who's a pretty formidable figure and 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 pretty tough, uh, as we've seen in some of our interrogations in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, and how that plays with the people likely to be running Biden's White House. I'm thinking of people like uh, Ron Klain and Tony Blinken, who've been around a long time, who are close to been close to Biden for years and have, you know, their own views uh, about how the government should be run. I, I just wonder whether uh, there's a prescription for some uh, some tension down the road there. Yeah. And I'm sure that uh, Kamala Harris is going to want to do everything she possibly can to pick her own team to make sure she has her own people around her who will, you know, help her push her own agenda and how that plays out is going to be fascinating. It, it would be interesting to know whether she made any of those kinds of uh, uh, demands from Biden when they had the conversation. My guess is she didn't because she was very eager to be uh, on the ticket. But who knows? Right, right. Well, we've got uh, two good guests to talk about the Harris selection, uh, starting with uh, Barbara Boxer, the senator who Harris succeeded, and then uh, law professor uh, Lara Bazelon. So let's get on with the show. Senator Boxer, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's nice that you invited me. Uh, we are excited to have you. So I suppose uh, if there's anybody who could take credit for the selection of Kamala Harris as uh, uh, Joe Biden's running mate, it's you, because you decided in 2016 not to run for re-election as California senator, which uh, opened the door for uh, Harris to run and take your seat. Exactly. And what's interesting is I said to myself at the time, it's time for a person of color to take this seat. A woman of color is what I wanted. And the two finalists were a Latina and Kamala. And a little did I know that this would be such a quick turnaround and we'd be looking at another person going to that seat, I hope, when she gets elected vice president. I should just follow up on that. I did note that uh, when Harris was running for your seat, she was running against Loretta Sanchez, a uh, Orange County a Democratic congresswoman. And there was a super PAC that ran ads attacking Harris, saying Harris is just another Barbara Boxer, a Bay Area liberal backed by the Democratic Party establishment. 
So is is Kamala Harris another Barbara Boxer? <laughs> I jumped in at that moment and endorsed Kamala, so that was it. Because I was sort of staying out of it. I didn't want to pick favorites. And when she got so negative, and that was the least of her negativity, I, I supported Kamala. By the way, Senator, I mean, you have been in the position to more directly push for Kamala Harris selection as uh, Joe Biden's running mate. You, of course, served with Joe Biden in the Senate. Did you have an opportunity to make your views known about her to Vice President Biden or the Biden campaign? And if so, what did you tell them? I told the campaign I thought it should be an African-American woman. I didn't select who that should be. I had so many favorites in that race, and I felt it was up to Joe. So I really pushed hard for a woman of color but I didn't get involved in who it should be. So you've obviously known uh, Kamala Harris for a long time. Uh, You know, she was a DA uh, in San Francisco. She was attorney general, of course, succeeded you. Tell us, you know, about your relationship with her, what struck you about her over the years, and um, why you're excited about her selection. Well, let me start off with why I'm excited about the selection, and then I'll tell you about all that. Again, my goal and my hope for this race was that it be a ticket that really brought America together. We have never been faced with a president who really disparages diversity. He's racist, and we need to have another message. And you could talk all you want, but when you see a ticket that's diverse like this, To me, it is inspiring, it is exciting, and it says almost everything that needs to be said, because we know that Donald Trump wants to divide us. So the ticket itself, it feels and it looks so, to me, so unifying. It's a a unifying message right there. Um, And Kamala, I think, you know, there were so many wonderful women in the running, I think that as you look at Kamala's career, it's going to be hard for Trump to really peg her because she's been a prosecutor. So you can't say, oh, she's a San Francisco liberal. She was a prosecutor, right? And, and she's not been in the Senate long enough to have such a long, huge voting record that you could attack. So I think it's a safe choice in that sense. I really got to know Kamala when she was running for AG. I didn't know her before uh, because we were on, we were campaigning together and we were going to the black churches and speaking. And I got very invested in her winning that seat. I was, it was a very tight race, if you remember, against a very right-wing guy from Los Angeles. So that's when I got to know her, called her a lot. She's just very personable. She when she wanted to run for the Senate, she came over to see me, and that was a wonderful visit that we had. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very warm relationship. Let me ask you this, Senator, because when she, first of all, there was an enormous amount of anticipation about her running for president. She was this rising star And, you know, I think a lot of people thought that she would be president at some point, and she may still be. Uh, When she announced, she had that enormous uh, event, 20,000 people in San Francisco. And then she got into the campaign. She had that 
strong debate performance where she was highly critical of, of Joe Biden. But then she her campaign sort of sputtered a bit and she faltered. And by the end of it, you know, she had gone from, you know, being one of the leaders to having about two percent support. So one reason that some critics have raised about about her performance is they, that she wasn't really clear about what her message was, what she stood for, what her real kind of convictions were about where she wanted to take the country. Is that a fair criticism? Do you have a sense of what she really stands for? Well, I think I would say that she's a Democrat. She's a, I'd say, a mainstream progressive. So, yeah, I think she's going to be strong on issues that Democrats embrace, like fair immigration, equality for all. I think she'll be quite strong. But here's the thing. She's not running for president now. She's running for vice president. So she is going to embrace Joe Biden's philosophy, what he wants done. And I'm sure and when he spoke with her, that was subject number one. So, And I also think it was very big of Joe in many ways to say, you know, you went after me, but I'll chalk it up to politics. And because what she did was tough <laughs> and <laughs> very tough. So it, show, it says a lot about Joe and, and it says a lot about Kamala that she could talk to Joe and say, you know, I was running for president. I was rough. I want you to know, and I'm sure she said some words similar to this, you know, that was just to to move up in the polls or something, or an honest evaluation of that moment. You know, um, Senator, you mentioned that uh, the Trump campaign is going to have a hard time pegging her. You pointed to her record as a prosecutor. But, you know, progressives had a lot of problems with her record as DA and AG. We, we have a, a guest coming on after you, Lara Bazelon, who wrote a very stinging critique of Harris's record last year in The New York Times, pointing out that she had failed to embrace criminal justice reforms uh, during her days as AG and um, a lot of issues that progressives uh, took exception to. Is that a fair critique of her record and or do you see an evolution in her thinking about some of these issues? Definitely there's been an evolution. I mean, look, I voted for the crime bill. All right. The Black Caucus almost every member voted for the crime bill. At that time, we didn't have the sensitivity of what could happen if we, you know, passed a law that said there's mandatory minimums and all the rest of it. You're talking about the 1994 crime bill that Biden actually authored. Yeah. And hardly anyone opposed it. Okay. And people could say, I could never vote for Barbara Boxer because she did that. Well, I was wrong, period. People, people do evolve. We do get to understand more. I voted. <laughs> I just wrote a big op-ed piece about how I was really sorry I voted to, for the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security. I did not realize that a president like Trump, a tyrannical guy, could create his own private militia out of that department. And I was wrong. But guess what? Only... Nine people voted against that bill. So, of course, you evolve and you learn more. 
And uh, I believe that we all have to take the criticism when we were wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. You just have to step up and admit it and say, I didn't see it right. And, and that's, yeah. she'll do that. I think she'll do that. And sometimes it's, it's actually about, you know, uh, politicians being political, which is what we, <laughs> we elect them to do sometimes. I mean, right? I mean, you know, in the context of the crime bill in 1994, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you and people in the, in the Congressional Black Caucus were getting pressure from communities that were the victims of crime that wanted more law enforcement and sometimes wanted tougher penalties. So I, I guess I, that just... just that, that is not an excuse. You're not, yeah. For me... That was never an excuse. I voted almost alone in several bills on the issue of gay marriage. So if that's not an excuse. Mm-hmm. You know, you always have to have the moral compass there. And I think we all make mistakes. I mean, if your community is yelling for something that's ridiculous, you should have the courage to stand up. We just we didn't see what would happen. We didn't realize what would happen. And that was a failure. So, I mean... <laughs> I don't like to say I was wrong. I mean, and I and as I look back, it didn't happen that much to me. But you have to admit that if you did do it just because, you know, let's let's take the war in Iraq. Okay, I voted against it. Thank God. Was one of 23 people. 80 percent of my district wanted that war. 80 percent. That's what the polls showed, and my state, that is, and. I still, you know, had did the right thing. So I, I don't give people a pass because, oh, you know, the back, background noise was there. We all make mistakes, and we have to step up and say, I didn't see it. I didn't see how it played out. I didn't see the unintended consequences. I, I guess the question is, do you think that at some point during the general election, Kamala Harris should step forward and say, that maybe she was wrong on some of these uh, criminal justice issues. Would that be a wise thing for her to do? If she thinks it, yes. Mm-hmm. If she if she thinks that she was wrong on reflection, she of course she should. And if she thinks that she was right because there were certain things going on at the time, I would never tell anybody else what to do. But I do think people want the truth. And you have a record. I had a record. It's perfectly right for people to attack it or praise it, and you just have to respond in, with the truth. I voted for this at the time because A, B, and C. You know, I look back on it now, and I recognize I missed an opportunity to do something better. This, that's what life is. Tell me who doesn't make a mistake. <laughs> Every day we do something. that. Oh, I wish I had that back. So, Senator, the first thing you said about uh, why you were excited about the ticket is because it's so important to bring the country together, which does mean to a lot of people reaching out to uh, those on the other side, including Trump supporters, including Republicans. Now, I did note that it's pretty interesting. You are uh, obviously have been a fierce liberal all your uh, uh, political career, and yet you had a, uh, a relationship, a close relationship with Senator Inhofe, the prime climate change denier in the United States Senate. You were a chair of the Senate Environment 
committee, uh, or and he was chair. You were ranking member when controls changed. But can Senator Harris do that? I mean, does she have a record of reaching out to those across the divide? And you know, given how hyper polarized our politics today is, is it even possible? Well, that's a great question. Look, I believe she has the ability to reach across. But I don't know that that's the job Joe's going to give her. Okay? I think I think he's going to, if I'm the campaign, I would say your job is to get out the women's vote, get out the minority vote, get out the vote of people who were sick and tired of, you know, Trump's hate-filled rhetoric. Go get those people. And I think Joe has a natural ability to get the more liberal Republicans away from Trump. A lot of them have left, you know, the Lincoln Project and all those other things that are going on. So there's, there's already a lot of that happening. But I do think, you know, as Kamala goes around the country, whether it's virtually or <laughs> really, you know, I think that she can speak to women of all parties. I think that she can do that. But I don't know that that would be her portfolio. Traditionally, the vice presidential candidate is the attack dog. Well, and she will do that, I'm sure, because she served with these people and she knows how terrible they are. But I think she will generate a lot of excitement on the trail. I think she does have the ability to talk across the aisle. But I think, you know, look, if you look at all the polls today, Joe is doing well. It's not over by any stretch of the imagination. And in these swing states, it's four points, five points. But they're not, and this is an important point, they're not speaking to people who never voted before, okay? So if you take the youth vote, which I think Kamala could really get out there, and I've seen her on the trail, she connects with young people. If she could get that turnout up from, say, 47%, where I think it was the last time, up to 55%, game over. So I don't know that she'll spend her time trying to court Republicans, but I do think Republican women will hear her. Senator, if Biden does win the election, I think it's not a secret that there's a a reasonable chance that he will only run for one term. And that, of course, would be Vice President uh, Kamala Harris in a very good position, maybe even the odds-on favorite position to capture the Democratic nomination for 2024. Given that, how should that affect the way she comports herself as, as vice president? Because there, of course, would be the potential for for tension between between herself and between the president and between their teams and potentially even differing agendas, given how the politics may change. So how does she handle that? Well, number one, I would bet that was discussed between the two of them because it's a very important point. And I think, and I've always believed, from the bottom of my heart, you're in a job. Do that job like no one else has ever done it. Do it better than anyone else. She's going to have a portfolio, and it's going to be very important because, look, we're in a public health crisis, a a dimension we haven't seen in modern history. People are hungry. People are scared. Kids aren't in school. We've got so many problems. She'll have a big portfolio, and as will the president. So, My advice to her and for her future 
is to do your job in the present in such a way that it's, you're, it's unassailable. People wouldn't like it if all of a sudden, you know, the vice president is going to some fundraiser for herself as opposed to doing the work for the president. It's just not going to go down well. And I'm sure she knows that, and I'm sure that was discussed. So I say, Kamala, do your job better than anyone in history, and the future is bright, you know? That's how I look at it. I want to get just a little wonky here. You were an environmental champion for years in the Senate. You were chairman of the Environment Committee. Uh, And it's pretty clear that the Trump campaign is trying to make an issue about Democratic opposition to fracking and saying that's going to cripple the energy industry and the economy in a lot of key energy-producing states. Is that a winning issue for them? And um, are you at all concerned that this could make an impact? Well, my view, I have a thousand-foot view about energy policy, and it's very consistent with Joe Biden's view, which is we've got an opportunity like no other to be the leader in the world in clean energy, it will dwarf the number of jobs you would have from fracking, and it's clean. So, you know, with Joe Biden in in the White House, you know, really looking at how do we meet the challenge of climate change and how do we meet the challenge of good-paying jobs and how do we meet the challenge of, you know, terrible environmental injustice from things like fracking and, and coal and all of that, we have a winning plan. And, you know, we've seen a lot of it in California. We've seen a huge boost in solar, even with Trump taking away a lot of the incentives. So I think rather than just get into one issue of fracking, I think the issue is if fracking is not safe, why on earth would anyone do it? It could really hurt the people. And let's move to energy that's clean and that makes sense that we could be the best exporter of solar and and all of that. So I think the issue of energy, they're on the wrong side of this in terms of jobs and environment and climate. Well, Isakoff asked a wonky question, and I'm going to ask a more human, personal que- <laughs> question, which is, uh, which is, uh, you know, a lot of Americans, of course, have known a lot about Kamala Harris for a long time. She's been on the national stage for a while now, but they don't know anything about her husband, who is in position to become the the second man, the second husband. What do we what do we call? First uh, gentleman. The, the first gentleman. <laughs> yeah. Second gentleman. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious. Uh, d- d- do you know him at all? Have you gotten a chance to meet him? Doug Emhoff you know, is the name. D- Doug Emhoff, who's a lawyer. I don't really know Doug very well. Uh, I think I've met him a couple of times. And uh, he's obviously one of her biggest fans. And uh, he certainly proved how much he cares about her when he lunged himself at a a protester who came up on the stage. I, I don't know. I, I can't tell you anything about his you know, career or, or anything like that. I guess the question is, what impact it has on the country if, if a man is in a position like that as opposed to uh, a woman in terms of uh, you know, kind of gender issues, how we view those issues? Well, I have to say that's a crazy question. I don't see anything. <laughs> I don't see any impact on the country. <laughs> oh, I meant, I meant, I meant in a positive sense. I meant. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. role modeling. Yes, yeah. I hear you. Okay. Well, clearly, uh, this ticket is defying the norms, 
and it's it's groundbreaking and it's exciting. And I do think that when we had so many independent first ladies, you know, whether it was Hillary Clinton or Michelle Obama or Laura Bush, for example, I think that the image of the spouse just being a stay-at-home spouse went away. So, you know what I'm saying? So I, I think it's not going to be that different because we're used to having first ladies and spouses be their own independent people. I understand Jill Biden would love to keep on teaching, which would be so extraordinary. I don't, I don't see that as a big deal, and I do see it as a positive, yes. You looking forward to a, uh, the Harris-Pence debate? Absolutely, I am. <laughs> I think it's going to be terrific. She's a, a really sharp debater. Are you, uh, and just a final question, um, you're still uh, pretty feisty, at least you sound so. Are you going to be out there campaigning? Yeah, I'm very feisty. I'm in touch with the Biden campaign. I told them, you know, I do whatever I can to help them. And I have been doing a few appearances and such. I'm also just quite involved. I'm teaching a class at USC. I'm starting soon, and I'm looking forward to that in uh, demystifying politics and governance. So that's exciting. And um, just doing a lot of things. I have a political action committee for which I volunteer. And we started a project called Meeting the Moment to help the African-Americans who are running for the U.S. Senate, because the U.S. Senate is not in any way representative of the country. You remember when I got there, we tripled the number of women, but we went from two to six. And now there's only three African-Americans in the United States Senate out of 100. Well, uh, Senator, we thank you for coming on and giving us your take. And um, we'll want to stay in touch as the uh, campaign rolls on. Of course, Michael. Anytime you guys want, I'm available. And now for another perspective on Senator Harris, we have with us uh, Lara Bazelon, a professor of law at the University of San Francisco School of Law and the author of Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. Lara, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. So you wrote a, uh, a pretty tough critique of Harris's record as a, a prosecutor last year for The New York Times. Uh, the headline was Kamala Harris was not a progressive prosecutor. You wrote time after time when progressives urged her to embrace criminal justice reforms as a district attorney and then the state's attorney general. Harris opposed them or stayed silent. Most troubling, she fought tooth and nail to uphold wrongful convictions. Tell us what your problem with Harris was then and how do you look at it now? Sure. So what prompted me to write that piece was that she launched her presidential campaign by casting herself as, quote unquote, a progressive prosecutor. So she attached that label to herself. And as someone who studies this quite closely and is very familiar with her record as San Francisco DA and attorney general as a resident of California, I knew that that was completely inaccurate and that nothing she had done as DA or as AG would be characterized properly as progressive. So I wrote my piece to point that out. 
never knowing that it would have the shelf life that it has. So you asked me about the evolution. It's amazing the way vice presidential selections can give new shelf life to old pieces. I know, right? So I... My thinking about this is once she went to the Senate, her record did change. And so these positions that she had, so I'll just give you a list. She opposed the legalization of marijuana. She opposed bail reform. She opposed DNA testing for a death row prisoner who many people believe is innocent, named Kevin Cooper. She fought to uphold wrongful convictions. When she got to the Senate, she reversed a lot of those positions and she took what are classically progressive stances. And so her record really evolved and shifted. And I think it was because progressives called her out during the presidential run and because she understood that the zeitgeist was moving on criminal justice quite far to the left and she had to go there. So how do you, well, actually my first question, Lara, is are you saying that she was within the sort of mainstream of big city prosecutors in the United States at that time when she was DA in San Francisco or attorneys general later when she was attorney general in California. And that now that uh, she is in the position to become vice president, that her her views on these issues you know have to change. I guess they have changed, you're saying. But, or are you saying um, that even when she was district attorney, when she was a prosecutor, her views were regressive? No, she was completely in the mainstream when she was a prosecutor. She was certainly not to the right by any stretch of the imagination. She was squarely in the Democratic center. I think the issue is that she tried to kind of retroactively label label herself a progressive prosecutor once that term became very trendy on the left. And so I think that was her mistake. But I do think since she's gone to the Senate, so that would be January 2017 through the present, her stances on criminal justice have become increasingly progressive, and that's just a documented fact. In your piece in the New York Times last year, you pointed out that in 2015, she opposed a bill requiring her office to investigate shootings involving police officers, and she refused to support statewide standards for the use of body-worn cameras by police. Uh, You know, those are pretty big issues today in light of the Black Lives Matter protests. So let's take us back to, it wasn't that long ago, 2015. We're only talking five years now. How do you account for these hardline positions that she took then, especially knowing that she, you know, grew up in Berkeley, part of the civil, you know, viewed herself as part of the civil rights uh, struggle. You know, it seems a little incongruous that somebody with her, you know, background as a child and and youth would then have these very hardline positions as a prosecutor. I think there are many factors that go into this. The first one is, even though 2015 seems like yesterday, from the perspective of progressive prosecution, it's about 100 years ago. So just to give you a sense, our current DA is the child of incarcerated parents who never prosecuted a single case before he was elected. If I told you that that was who our DA was going to be in 2015, you would have laughed in my face. So we are really in a different era. I think that she also was completely a pathbreaker in the sense that she was a black woman seeking to be the first black DA of San Francisco up against the machine. She once again was up against the machine when she ran for AG and she won by less than a percentage point. And in fact, she had at that point the opposition of a lot of 
police officer and California District Attorney Association folks who were very powerful in the state. And so she really had to be strategic, I think, and carve out these alliances and also just push back against gendered, racist stereotypes that all women of color who have any kind of ambition are confronted with. So I think it was just a combination of factors, probably, and possibly core beliefs, I don't know, not inside of her mind, that caused her to take the kind of cautious incremental positions that she's known for taking. Well, the argument that she has made, and she says that this was something she was arguing all the way back when she made the decision to become a prosecutor, because she had to explain that to her progressive family and community in Berkeley, was that she was going to push for change from within, from the inside, and that you shouldn't always have to be standing on the outside on your on bended knee calling for change, I think, as she, as she put it. What is the evidence that she actually tried to do that? Or was that just something that she conveniently came up with kind of retroactively? To be honest, I don't think there's a great deal of evidence for that. She did do something. She established something called Back on Track, which was a program to help first-time nonviolent offenders escape the criminal justice system and the stigma of conviction. But it only helped a couple of hundred people. She did do some important things in, I think, getting rid of a great backlog in, in rape contesting, and obviously that's very important. She did mandate that the people working under her and the AG wear a body-worn camera. She just didn't mandate it statewide. She left it up to local jurisdictions. So she did some things. And and she did, by the way, she, she did oppose... And she does oppose the death penalty, right? And and she, and in that one case involving the uh, the person who killed a, a cop in 2004, she she declined to pursue the the death penalty, and that almost cost her her election as AG, right? That is an excellent point, and I did overlook that, and I should not have. That was a very important stance that she took early on and she stuck to, because right after she was elected DA, an undercover officer was shot and killed, and she did not seek the death penalty, and she was called out at his funeral by Diane Feinstein. I mean, the amount of backlash that she got was enormous, and you're absolutely right that it hampered her going forward, and she still refused to seek the death penalty. Now, that said, when she was attorney general and a federal judge overturned the death penalty, finding that it was unconstitutional, she successfully appealed that ruling. And so now we still have the death penalty in California. Yeah. And of course, it may have been a cautionary lesson for her. I mean, she is a politician after all. And um, she realized, presumably, that uh, if she did not change her positions or, or modulate them in some way, that that would cost her politically. Right. So here's, I think, the, the most important question right now. We're in, we're in a political moment in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, death and the uh, protests around the country. Clearly, within the um, arena of democratic progressive politics, it's very important for Harris to downplay the issues that you were raising when you wrote this critique last year and uh, be seen as in the mainstream of progressives who want to reform the criminal justice system. On the other hand, it's pretty clear what the Republican attack is going to be on the Democratic ticket. And to the extent that the protests have become violent, as we saw, as we've seen in Portland and the looting and vandalism we saw this week in Chicago with over 100 people arrested for what was described as a riot on Michigan Avenue and the spike in violence in a lot of our major cities 
How does Harris navigate that, the attacks that are inevitable on this front? You know that's what the Republicans are going to be hammering the Democrats on. You know, it seems to me she's got quite the balancing act she's got to do here. How, how do you see how she handles it? I think she's going to handle it incredibly well. I listened to the Donald Trump phony Kamala ad, and I was just laughing out loud. It's so silly to think that she is somehow a creation or captured by the radical left. And that argument just has absolutely no evidence to support it. And the other thing that we know about Kamala Harris is that she can prosecute a pretty effective case for herself. I personally cannot wait to see her up against Mike Pence on a debate stage. I plan to sit down with some popcorn and thoroughly enjoy myself. (laughs) I just don't think that those attacks on her are going to stick because they're not grounded in reality. Well, leave aside the, the, the attacks on her, the attacks on what's going on, what's happening in the streets of our cities. You know, all you have to do is watch Fox at any point in the day and you'll see the violence and the protests and the spike in violence in our cities being played up, you know, nonstop. And this is going to be a real campaign issue I guess my question is, how does Harris handle it? What does she say about what her attitudes and position is going to be about the violence that we are seeing in some of our cities? So I think the best way to game that out is to think back to an interview that she had with Meghan McCain on The View maybe six or eight weeks ago, where Meghan McCain kept trying to corner her and get her to say that she supported the defund the police movement. And what Kamala Harris did was essentially say that she did without saying it. She never uttered those words. What she did was school Meghan McCain and make her look like an absolute fool and explain what exactly people meant by that and what restructuring the police meant and what removing resources and redirecting them meant. And she did it in this very calm, measured way that also conveyed that she was the expert on the topic. And I think obviously things have changed since then. And yes, there's been a lot of violence, but I don't think it's a difficult case to make to say that you condemn violence, you condemn crime, you condemn victimizing business owners, and at the same time, understand where this grief and rage and anger is coming from and propose progressive reforms that are designed to address that. And I have no doubt she's going to be able to say that much, much better than I just have to both of you. There's no question that she is a she's a dexterous politician. And I think you're right. She will handle it in the way you just said. You know, it's it's interesting. The top of the ticket, Joe Biden, has had his own issues with criminal justice policy, you know, being the author of the. 1990, what was it? Is it called? 1994 crime bill. 1994 crime bill. 96 Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which had nothing to do with terrorism or the death penalty, but has ruined many a life. Right. And, you know, that was an issue for about 15 minutes during the Democratic primary. And at this point, I see people raising that issue about Kamala Harris, but not about Joe Biden. So I, I just kind of wonder, in a general election campaign, even in the wake of unrest and racial issues in this country, if this issue, as important as it is, is going to be decisive in any way or, or really consequential for the rest of you know the campaign. I, I, mean, I just don't I, see I, I'm going to break in and, and say, I think it is, because I think this is the Republican play. I mean, it's not so much what Harris did in 2015. It's going to be 
you're going to see campaign ads playing up the uh, violence in these protests. I mean, that's inevitable. And so then the question is, you know, how Biden and Harris navigated. But anyway, okay. well, I just my last point on this is that is that, that, you know, the Trump campaign is that that is their suburbs play. They know they are weak in the suburbs, particularly among women in the suburbs. And or as uh, Trump calls them, you know, the housewives, he says the housewives are going to vote for him. But I actually think that Kamala Harris is a is a comforting choice in American suburbs, partly because of her moderate positions and because of that past as a prosecutor. I don't think, I disagree with you on this one, Isakoff. I do think there's two things she has going <laughs> for her the in the suburbs, book. though. One of them is, you know, it was really interesting towards the end, there were these leaks that Chris Dodd and others were saying she wasn't, quote, remorseful enough and she was too calculating and ambitious. And I, I think a lot of women in the suburbs are really over that kind of critique of other women and see it as pretty sexist and lame. And I think the other thing that she has going for her is that she's just someone who inspires a lot of women and who a lot of women admire because she's been able to accomplish so much. And so I think she does have a very specific appeal in the suburbs. And finally, I think what you guys are describing is just this Willie Horton playbook. And, you know, that may have worked with Lee Atwater back in the 1980s, but I'd like to believe 30 or 40 years later, we've, we've moved beyond that. You may be right. Uh, we will we will find out soon enough, hopefully, if we get if we ever get the results of the election. But look, uh, Larry, you are a uh, a progressive law professor, and given what you've you know pointed out about Joe Biden's record on these issues and and Harris's record on these issues, what is your level of excitement and enthusiasm? enthusiasm about this ticket. Here's what I think. I think this is an existential election. I literally think the survival of our planet is potentially at stake. The ticket is the ticket. The other ticket has two monsters on it. So if you ask me how enthusiastic I am, I am damn enthusiastic and I'm going to do everything I possibly can. Everything I possibly can in my own little obscure law professor way to help them win. Well, appearing on Skullduggery is one way for you to do that. Um, so we... Uh, I was going to say, if there is an enthusiasm gap, I think, you, uh, for Joe Biden, I think you just made it up in one interview. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so well done. Uh, uh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, Laura, thanks a lot for joining us. And we will check back with you as the campaign unfolds. Gentlemen, it was a pleasure. Thanks to professor of law at the University of San Francisco, Lara Bazelon, and former U.S. Senator from California, Barbara Boxer, for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.